Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22 this morning. You can find it on page 911, 912 in the Bibles that are provided there in the chairs. What is in a name? I'd say sometimes a lot, sometimes very, very little. Sometimes you're named after a loved one, a grandfather or a grandmother, like in the the circumstance of, of Phyllis, that's how she got that name. They didn't just like old names, they named her after her grandmother. As a way of loving and revering and honoring that person who was dear to them. Sometimes names have great significance, great meaning. That, that's what we wanted for our kids. And so Laden Alexander means a witness and a helper and defender of men. Gabriel Kyle means God is my strength on the straight and narrow. Claire Elise is a clear, distinct, and bright gift from God. William Judson is a resolute protector and son of the praised one. Though right now, at this point in his life, he more overemphasizes the resolute. He's very protective of his own stuff. But we pray that by faith, he will become a child of God, a son of the praised one. Cole Beckett means of a victorious people who dwell beside streams of living water. We wanted our kids' names to mean something. My name doesn't mean anything. <laughs> well, it does. It means urban dweller, but that's not why my parents called me that. My parents named me Chet because they liked the name. They thought it was unique. I mean, they only heard of one other person with the name Chet, and that was Chet Atkins, the guitar player. So that was pretty cool, right? So, so they, that's what they named me. But little did they know that they were going to subject me to a lot of frustration given my name. You see, time and 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 time again, people mispronounce, they misspell, and they misapply my name. I have been called Chad, Chat, Jet, Jeb, Jet, Brett, but never Chet. When I go into a restaurant, they say, what's your name? I say, my name is Chet. Here's how it's spelled, C-H-E-T. They can never seem to get it right. In fact, in, in the entirety of my life, there's only few exceptions where people ever really seem to get my name right. Once is around Christmas time when they would always like to substitute my name for part of a word in a very famous Nat King Cole Christmas song. Chet's nuts roasting on an open fire. The other time is when they wanted to swear without swearing. My name literally has become a cuss word to many. And so now you will never think of my name in quite the same way again. But what is in the name Jesus? Why is that name so important, so significant? Why is it both so loved and so hated, the subject of so much praise, but also so much ridicule? Why is it so important for us to know this name for all that it means? Not, not just for what we want it to mean. Why is it so important that we embrace this name, that we revere this name, that we love this name, that we honor this name, Jesus? That we receive this name, Jesus? This name is of utmost importance because what we're going to see from Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22 is that there is no other name 
by which we must be saved. And so let's turn our attention to this most important of names, Jesus, as we read Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. It says, and as they, and that's Peter and John, were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power and by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people of People and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign had been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone of this name." So they called them and charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened." For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Now, if you were to ask somebody what their hang-up is with Jesus, no one's going to come to you and say, you know, I've got a problem with Jesus because he was such a nice guy, because he was kind, because he, he performed a lot of good deeds, because because. He, he's a great example to us of love and sacrifice or, or because he was a very inspired teacher. They might even go so far as to even acknowledge that he was a prophetic voice of God. No one hates him because of any of that. Typically, people reject Jesus for one or more of three reasons. First, 
they would say it's the supernatural notions of miracles or the resurrection or this belief that Jesus is divine. That's just absurd and, and superstitious. I mean, how could anyone in this modern scientific age believe anything like that? The second would be the claims that he made that he was the only way to God. I mean, how could Christians make such exclusive assertions to say that he is the one and only way of salvation, that he is the one and only way to God, to heaven? And the third would be Jesus' claim of authority. Because let's face it, guys, if he is who he says that he is, then that means that he is Lord and I am not. And that means that I owe my allegiance to him. Nobody has a problem with buddy Jesus. But everyone has a problem with Christ Jesus, the only Savior and Lord. Well, this passage deals directly with all three of those issues. There is no other name by which we must be saved. And so to understand the significance of this name, we must understand the power and presence of His name the exclusivity of his name, and the authority of his name. And so first, let's consider the power and presence of his name. Now, Jesus' name literally means salvation. But there's so much more to the name of Jesus than simply that. This concept or this phrase, in the name of Jesus, is very, very significant throughout the book of Acts. It occurs 33 times in this book alone, five times in this passage that we're looking at this morning. In chapter 2, just kind of by way of context, during Peter's first sermon there at Pentecost, he says in verse 21, as he quotes from the Old Testament prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, and he's referring to Jesus, though Joel was speaking of God, they're one in the same, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And again, a few verses later in chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sin, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Another way of kind of speaking of salvation. And so already we've got salvation, we've got the forgiveness of sin, we've got receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit, all coming through the name of Jesus. Already, this is an extremely significant claim that comes only in the name of Christ. In chapter 3, we have the event that sets up this encounter that we have, that we're looking at today between Peter, John, and this Jerusalem council. As Peter and John were going into the temple at the ninth hour to pray, they met a man there who was born lame, who sat at the gate of the temple that is called Beautiful, and he's asking for alms. But instead of giving this man money, verse 6 says that Peter speaks to the man, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And again, in his sermon, because that's how Peter deals with, with questions. That's how Peter addresses the people and all of the thoughts and quandaries they have. He preaches to them. I like that. He says there in verse 16, In Jesus' name, by faith in Jesus' name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given this man this perfect health in the presence of you all. 
Now, this is important for us to consider. We need to zoom in on what he just said right there because he said that it was Jesus who has given this man perfect health. It was Jesus' name. It was Jesus' presence with his disciples. It was Jesus' power who healed him. And so when we hear that phrase, in Jesus' name, we have to think about the power of Jesus to heal, to perform signs and wonders and miracles, to cast out demons, to raise the dead, because that's the way it's used. But also we have to think about it in terms of his power to call us to salvation, to save us, to forgive us. Also the way it's used throughout the book of Acts. So we have to think about Christ's presence as well. His union with his people through the Holy Spirit. Because it wasn't Peter or John that healed this man. It wasn't as though they sort of tapped into some mystical Jesus power. Right? That there's this anomaly that is Jesus power. And if you just tap into this anomaly of Jesus power, like a spigot in a tree, you can get water from it. It was Jesus who healed the man. It was Jesus who said, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age who healed this man. So we pick up here in chapter 4, verse 1. And Peter and John were speaking to the people, and the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. And so you've got these priests, the captain of the temple. Think of this guy as the second in command in the temple, sort of the commissioner of the temple police. He's kind of a big deal. And these Sadducees, the aristocracy, and they interrupt them because they're greatly annoyed with them. They're, they're fed up. They, they can't take it anymore. And why are they so fed up with them? Well, one, they're, they're teaching the people. I mean, who are they to do this? Two, they were proclaiming in Jesus. I mean, there's that name again. Three, they were preaching about the resurrection from the dead, a belief that the Sadducees rejected. And four, it's getting late. And this sermon has gone on quite long enough. Longer than an hour, by the way, just, just to let you know. They wanted the crowd to settle down and go home because it was dark. And otherwise, the Romans might become greatly annoyed with them. And they did not want that. Now, we don't know a whole lot about these Sadducees. And what we do know about them, we learn from the writings of those who they opposed or who opposed them. Right? It's kind of like somebody telling us about you, somebody that you don't like and they don't like you, and they're telling you, like telling us what you're like. That's not necessarily going to be super accurate, but that's all we got. We don't have any writings from the Sadducees. What we do know about them, though, is that they were kind of like a political party who formed some 150 years before Christ, and they filled many high ranking positions there in among the people of Israel. Many of the Sadducees were priests, but that does not mean that all priests were Sadducees. Typically, the high priest was a Sadducee, maybe even the, the captain of the temple. I think it's probably best to understand these priests, this captain of the temple, and these Sadducees as sort of being one in the same. Often they, they were upper class, and so they had a lot to gain and a lot to lose politically by any disruption any usurping, and so they, they tended to be in favor of appeasing Roman rule. 
because they didn't want trouble because if they had trouble, they would lose their status. So they were probably fairly Hellenized and stood to gain from Roman rule. We also know from the book of Luke and the book of Acts that unlike the Pharisees, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did not believe in spirits, not angels, not demons. They didn't believe in the immortality of the human soul. In other words, when you die, that's it. That's all you got. You cease to be. We also learn from other sources that they were skeptical of Jewish oral tradition and all but the first five books of the Old Testament. And so they held to the law, and because they held to such a narrow view of this being from God, they kind of considered themselves to be more conservative than the Pharisees, though the Pharisees would say quite opposite. The Pharisees were more sort of morally conservative, but the Sadducees were saying like, look, you've accepted all this other stuff as revelation where we just say it's just this right here. But even when you think about the way that they looked at the law, they looked at the law primarily as coming from Moses for the good of governing the people of Israel. And so, yes, sure, let's accommodate, let's allow for all of these religious traditions because that defines who we are as a people. You want to know who a Jew is? You look at the temple. You look at all these religious practices that they're doing. And the law was given for the governing of people so that we could live together well and do one another no harm. You see, it wasn't really vertical. It wasn't really about reflecting God's moral nature or or living in in fellowship with him or, or seeking to obey his will as much as it was horizontal. Let's keep our traditions. Let's keep our, our ethnicity alive. Let's govern our people well, right? This ought to sound pretty familiar to us. This is very common in our day. We also learn from Jewish tradition that they also rejected the belief that God providentially governs all things. But instead, everything that happens is a result of man's free choice. That any, any good, any bad that comes about, it's, it's at the hands of men because God is uninvolved. They're, they're functional deists, right? They're, Things happen, but it's not according to the sovereign purpose of God. And so sure, the Sadducees were moral. Sure, they gave people their religious traditions for comfort. But they were deists. They were moral, therapeutic deists. Right? If you've ever read read the book by Christian Smith, that will sound pretty familiar to you. They didn't believe in angels, didn't believe in demons, didn't believe in the immortality of the human soul. They did not believe in the afterlife or the resurrection of the dead and who thought that this life is all there is and so therefore there's no eternal judgment from God and so gain all that you can in this life in the best possible means in the most moral way that you can. Sadducees, again, should be pretty familiar to us. For them, God was not present and the concept of power that they lived by was purely earthly. It was political was financial, and even religion was a form of power. And all of that power rested in the hands of men. And so this is why they feared offending both Rome and the people, because those were the only two groups that could potentially threaten them and take away their position and power. So what do they do about it? They arrested Peter and John. And when the whole council had gathered together, The very next day, this time they're joined by the rulers, the elders, the scribes, the high priests, and the high priestly family, according to verses 5 and 6. 
So this is the governing power of the people of Israel. This is the same group that had just condemned Jesus to death a few months earlier. And they came together because they had to deal with this fact that there was a man who was born lame that suddenly can walk. And verse 22 tells us that this man was more than 40 years old. And here he is, he's walking, and they cannot deny it. And so they asked Peter and John, by what power or by what name did you do this? You see, they have been confronted by a power, by a position, by a person, by a name that is far greater than the power of social position, the power of government, the power of affluence, the power of sword, or even the power of nature itself. They have come face to face with the divine power, a supernatural power that goes beyond their naturalistic understanding and runs counter to the natural order of things. Men born lame do not suddenly start walking at the age of 40. This was a miracle. So they were brought face to face with this reality. They were the political and religious leaders of Israel, of God's people. But did they believe that the God of their scripture, the God who delivered their people from slavery through many signs and wonders and miracles was actually present and was actually acting in power towards their people? And if so, how could they deny this present power that stands before them as evidence? You see the weight of this. Now they would say they were about the good of man. But Peter actually challenged them on this notion in verse 8. When he says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined here today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, which, which you ought to be for, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, And to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And that word that he uses there, healed, in verse 9, that word is the same word, saved. Peter is, is performing a play on words right there to show that Jesus' power and presence to heal this man's feet This man's feet and ankles was a sign of his greater power to rise from the grave, a sign of his greater power to save. And so friends, when you, you look at this, rejoice in the miracle, but don't be sidetracked by the miracle. You see, it's not the point. This is a sign. The miracle is a notable and unique sign that the almighty God of Scripture is present and that He is at work. That's the way that signs work through Scripture. They are unique events. They're not commonplace. This is God-given indication that He is present and acting in power. And by the risen Jesus, this man was standing before them well. And so the point is not for you to ooh and awe over the miracle. The point is for you to ooh and awe over Jesus. 
To get stuck on the miracle is like seeing a sign for Disney World, getting really excited about it, and stopping there. It makes no sense. And so in verse 12, he adds, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The power and the presence of the miracle is simply a sign to them, a sign that the risen Jesus' supernatural power and presence is there to save. Friends, do not reject. You cannot reject his power and his presence. You cannot reject the supernatural. You cannot reject miracles. You cannot reject the resurrection and think that you can somehow find salvation in Jesus. Because it is Jesus' power and presence in this miracle that proves that he does have the power to save. But if you're rejecting Christ, and friends, not even a miracle is enough. Verse 14 says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Verse 16, as they were conferring together, they said to one another, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign, we realize this is a sign, we know it's a sign, it's a notable sign, has been performed through them. It's evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. Friends, they recognized it was a notable sign that they could not deny, but they didn't accept it. And they didn't want to see it spread any further lest they lose their power and position. Now, liberal scholars at this point, they want to argue that Luke is putting words in their mouth because, look, in verse 15, we see that, that Peter and John, they were, they were removed from the council, so they weren't even there. So how, who's this Christian witness that even tells them what they said? Clearly, this is Luke making the whole thing up to prove his point. Well, I would add and argue that Paul may have been there but Paul's tutor, Gamaliel, was most certainly there. But the greatest evidence we have for the truthfulness of this statement is actually found in chapter 6, verse 7. In chapter 6, verse 7, it says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. A great many of the priests who had stood in this council. A great many of the priests who heard this word and believed. You see, it wasn't the miracle that convinced them. It was the word of God. It's only the word of God that will convince you of Jesus' power and presence. It's only the word of God that will lead us to take our eyes off of this world for this council, their positions, their power and presence of both Roman authorities and the people were of greater weight, of greater significance, of greater urgency than God. And so when we think about our own lives, what has the most power 
And is the greatest presence in your life that would lead you to deny the power and presence of Christ? Is it the approval of your family, your friends, your government, your exalted sense of reason? Are you afraid of losing face among the academy? Living in such a way that those who are hostile towards Christ might become hostile toward you? Are you going to trust in the mind of man, whether that be yourself or your teachers, over the wisdom and power of God? You see, for those 5,000 or so that are there in verse 4, the power and presence of Christ had come upon them, and it says, but many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of men came to about 5,000. The power and presence of Jesus' name that they heard and believed from the word of God is what saved them. They had called upon his name. They had repented and believed they had received the forgiveness of sin and the gift of the Holy Spirit to dwell in them. And they would be baptized in his name. They praised God for all that had happened in his name. Friends, when we believe and receive the power and presence of his name, that's what happens. But it comes only as we believe. But Jesus' name is not simply one power or one presence among many, which is why we have to consider, second, the exclusivity of his name. If there is anything that is so hated about Christianity, it is this, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. Kevin DeYoung points out that we live in a day where the default religion of our society is anything that is personal, psychologized, and pragmatized. It is personal, meaning it is between me and God. It suits my understanding, my willingness, my desire to worship anything that I consider to be God, and that's okay, and you can really have nothing to say about it because it's just between me and my idea of God. It's psychologized in that it helps me. It comforts me. It gives me a sense of peace. It makes me to feel better about myself and who I am. And it's pragmatized in that it works for me. It helps me to better myself or to better my standing among men. And if it does all three of those things, then who are you to question? Who are you to deny? Who are you to, to say that I am wrong? But friends, here's the thing. Those three categories, they apply to every single worldview, every single religion, every single belief system, every single worldly thing that we would fashion into a God, whether you believe in such a thing or not. It's subjective, it's relative, it's pluralistic in nature. If that's fine for you to believe that Jesus is your way to salvation, but don't tell me that he is mine or that my way is wrong. You do what works for you and you leave me to mine. 
You need to tolerate it. You need to deal with it. But if you speak out against it, then I'm going to shut you down. Now, lest you start to, to think that our day and our culture is, is much worse off, I want to argue that perhaps now, more than any other day in the history of our nation, we actually are, are most similar to, we reflect Peter's day the most. You see, this council was comprised of Pharisees and Sadducees. Sadducees, like I said before, they didn't believe in the immortality of the soul, the resurrection of the dead, and therefore the afterlife. They did say that there is one God, but he has not providentially governed anything, and since there's no eternal life, then he will not judge us. Therefore, live for the now while you consider your fellow man. And let's get in good with Roman rule, and let's be sure to appease the people so that we can live our best life now. The Pharisees would oppose them on almost every single point with the exception of monotheism and considering your fellow man. And here they are on the council together. But that worked out really great. But despite all of their disagreements, there was one thing that was absolutely clear from Scripture. These monotheistic Jews are not about to start worshiping a man from the middle of nowhere, Nazareth, who they considered to be blasphemous and who they themselves had condemned to death. That was clear. And there's a problem because at least 5,000 monotheistic Jews were now outside worshiping him. The Romans, they were syncretistic and polytheistic. Syncretistic means that they sort of included different elements of various religions. You just take on this and you take on that and you kind of dabble in this and dabble in that. Polytheistic means that they held to more than one God. Quite honestly, the Romans really didn't care what you believed just so long as you did not tell them that they were wrong to believe what they believed and as long as you paid homage to the emperor. Believe whatever you want, just shut your mouth about my faith, and all you got to do is say Caesar is Lord. But there's a problem, because the followers of Christ recognize that you could not say Caesar is Lord and say that Jesus is Lord, because Jesus is the only Lord. So they began to persecute Christians. Unfortunately, Many today who profess faith in Christ live very, like very syncretistic lives and have more in common with Sadducees and Pharisees and even the Romans than they do the apostles. And so in terms of the religious climate, it's every bit as diverse as it was now. And here you have these rulers, these leaders, these religious authorities who are pushing Christians towards the rejection of Christ. They're pushing them towards syncretism, towards relativism, towards pluralism, and towards intolerant toleration. But at this point, it's simply, you need to be quiet and not talk about it. Believe what you want, but allow me to believe whatever is right for me. 
Now, friends, if you've ever come across relativism, it, on the surface, it sounds very, very humble. I mean, because like, really, I mean, who am I to say that, that what you believe is, is wrong, right? I mean, I know what works for me. I know what I hold to be true. I know that, that there's this, this emotive response that comes from it. But, but if you believe something different, I mean, who am I to say that that's not right? I mean, it sounds very, very humble, but it's not. Subjectivity is okay if you're debating who has the best coffee in town. Starbucks, no, 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 Dunkin' Donuts, nope, nope, flying machine, got the pour-overs over there, flying machine's the place. No, no, have you ever been to Cafe Benet? Espresso Royale, huh? No way, it's Folgers, right? Now, everybody agrees it's not Folgers, and so you know, Christians would be the Folgers in this illustration. I mean, that's okay in those types of situations, but it's not okay if your view is false. Hey, guys, guess what? I can breathe underwater. Chet, <laughs> you can't breathe underwater. No, 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 I can. I believe that I can breathe underwater. Well, Chet, you, you breathe air. You, you don't have gills. If you take an anchor and, and you tie it around your leg and you, you throw it off of the side of the boat into the ocean, you're going to drown. Go try that sometime. No, I'm kidding. Um, that kind of belief is not subjective. And the same is true with our belief about Christ. The Christian view of Jesus is incompatible with a Muslim or a Jewish or a Hindu or a Buddhist or a New Age spiritualist or an atheist or any other view of Jesus. You see, Christianity is not based upon fables or myths or lies or legends or even personal opinions, but upon historical fact of a real man, Jesus, who did everything that Scripture said that he did, from really being born of a virgin to really ascending into heaven. He really is the Son of God who really did take on flesh, who really did live a perfect life of obedience to his Father in every single way, he really did perform all of the miracles and signs and wonders that testified to his true identity. He really did die for sin and rise again. He really did appear to his disciples for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. And he really did pour out the Holy Spirit upon all of his people. And this man here, this was a real man who was really born lame, who really was healed, who really stood beside the real disciples of Jesus, Peter and John, before a real Sanhedrin that just months earlier really did condemn Jesus to death. And Peter really did stand before this council of really powerful and really religious people and tell them in verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you 
crucified, whom God raised from the dead. By him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone in fulfillment of Isaiah 28 and Zechariah 10 and Psalm 118. He is the beginning and end of it all. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is not a way. He is the way. He is not a means of salvation. He is the one and only Savior. He is not just a prophet. He is the one who has fulfilled all prophecy. He is not just a Lord. He is the Lord of Lords. He was not simply a godly man. He is the God man. And you cannot make him anything less. If you try to do that, you lose Christianity. If you try to do that, you lose Jesus. He is unique. You see, no one ever loved the way that Jesus loved. No one ever was sinless. No other man was born of a virgin heralded by angels. No one ever performed miracles with such power or taught with such authority. No one else ever frightened the devil or fulfilled all of God's prophecy. No one ever healed as Jesus healed. No one ever cared for the broken, the downtrodden, the marginalized, the way that Jesus did. No one ever forgave sin. No one ever raised the dead. No one ever predicted his own suffering and death and resurrection. No one ever paid the ransom for sin with his own blood. No one ever else rose from the grave or ascended into heaven or poured out his Holy Spirit on all of his followers. And therefore, no one else is worthy of worship. No one. Friends, those are exclusive claims that are incompatible with any and every other worldview. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, lest you think that this is harsh or unloving, I just want you to consider the scene again. Peter is standing before the same council who just months earlier condemned his Lord Jesus to death. And I wonder if he looked Caiaphas in the eyes when he said to him, I want you all to know that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the man whom you crucified, the man whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. He is the stone that God foretold would be rejected by you, the builders which God has made the cornerstone And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men 
Not, not any other religious leader, not any other political ruler, not you, not me, not anyone else by which we must be saved. And he said, we. I just I was struck by it. He said, we. You and me, all of us, even this council right here, we must be saved. These guys, the ones who, who were the builders who rejected and crucified Jesus, the same council who in the very next chapter are going to arrest the apostles and beat them. But in chapter 6, verse 7, we're told that many of the priests, even among this council, became obedient to the faith. Friends, that is not harsh. That is unbelievable mercy. That's the mercy of Christ, who as he hung upon the cross said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This is the mercy of Christ that allows us the opportunity to repent and believe so that our sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come to us from the very presence of the Lord God who is with us. And that we may at last, when all things are fulfilled, dwell with him in perfect glory at the appointed time. And he offers this to sinners who have rejected and who have killed him who like the Sadducees live as if there's no judgments, no eternal life. Friends, we all deserve eternal condemnation. And yet he still offered us, he still offered them everything in Christ. But it comes only through him. So we've seen the power and the presence and the exclusivity of his name. Before we go, we need to briefly consider third, the authority of his name. We have to deal with this because if we're going to look honestly, and deal honestly with the root issue, it's probably this one. I mean, the rejection of his power and presence can often be a ruse, an excuse, a justification for why it's okay for me not to believe. The rejection of his authority or his, his exclusivity is an, an attempt that we make to rewrite what it means to be saved. But the rejection of his authority is at the root. It's at the very heart of the issue, of our problem with Jesus. And it affects every single one of us. See, if he is who he says that he is, then he is Lord and I am not. And if he is who he says he is, then I owe my allegiance to him. For the council, it didn't matter that Jesus is the true Messiah that they had supposedly been praying and waiting for. They were in charge of God's people and they weren't planning on giving up their positions anytime soon. For the council, it didn't matter that he is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament passages that we've already seen in the first four chapters of the book of Acts, let alone all those that we haven't seen. But he was not the Lord that they wanted. But friends, their rejection of him does not make him any less Lord. 
It didn't matter that Jesus had commissioned his apostles and given them the power of the Holy Spirit to bear witness to his name because in their mind, these guys had no real credentials. They were nobodies, no PhDs. They're They're not book writing Bible scholars. I mean, what do they know? And so they said to him there in verse 16, they're uneducated common men. They may have been shocked by their boldness, but who are these know-nothing followers of Jesus and how dare they say this to us? It didn't matter to this council that Jesus had even given them a sign by healing this man born lame. And though they had nothing to say in opposition, they couldn't deny it at all. They were concerned about their own authority. They just wanted Peter and John to keep quiet. They didn't want to see that message spread. But insisting upon their own authority, it says in verse 18, that they called Peter and John and they charged them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But when Peter and John refused, all they did at that point was threaten them and let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, because all those people were out there praising God. And so there we see their true authority. There's what they live by. They feared Rome. They feared the people. They feared losing their positions more than they feared God. But Peter and John, they lived by a different authority. They stood before these heads of the academy, heads of state, heads of religion, heads of the family tribes of Israel, and they spoke boldly to this council who months earlier had condemned their Lord, and they said in verse 19, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. I can't not talk about him. To listen to Christ is to listen to God. To listen to him above all of the competing voices of this world who would contradict Christ, whether that be the government or the rich and powerful or the celebrities or the religious or the scholars or even the heads of family. To follow Christ is to put him first before my will, before my ambition, before my longings, before my popularity, and at times even before my safety. And we're going to see as we continue through the book of Acts how many times they suffered for the sake of his name. To be baptized in his name means to swear allegiance to Christ, to make a public declaration that I love and long to follow my Lord Jesus, to be united with him in his death and burial and resurrection, and to live my life for him because he now lives in me. And I want the world to know that his power and his presence are with me. He is my Lord. He is my authority. I live for him. Friends, even when we pray, we pray in Jesus' name. Ever wonder why we do that? We do that because he is the only one who has the power and presence to change anything. To change the world, to change our situation, most importantly to change our hearts. To teach in the name of Christ is to teach what Christ taught, what the scripture teaches, not anything less than that. 
but that which in every way is consistent and faithful with the authoritative teaching of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, we are not Christian. And it's the authority of Christ that strengthened Peter and John to boldly proclaim his name. Friends, think about it for a minute. If Jesus was dead, or if Jesus wasn't of a greater authority than the people, than the Roman rule, than this council, they never would have been so bold. They would have found some way to sort of scoot and skirt around the issue. Well, you know, so you tell me, what, by what power, by what name, this man is well? Well, you know, we're not trying to, trying to hurt anybody here. We're just, you know, we were going to pray like you. You saw us there in the temple. We were praying, right? We were just like standing right next to you, kind of looking at you, right? And so you just, we're here because, you know, the God of Israel Healed the man, it was him, just like he did, you know, back in the miracles that we read about with the Exodus, kind of like that. Sorry to offend, can I go on my way? But they didn't do that. You see, they didn't fear the council because by Christ's own authority, nations rise and fall. They didn't fear the council or this loss of reputation or the condemnation of this council because Christ has the authority to vindicate them. They did not fear the loss of wealth, the loss of position, the loss of possessions, the loss of material goods, because Christ already owns it all and has given them every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Theirs is glorious inheritance that is kept by God for them. They did not fear being ostracized by the people or even by their own family because they were now citizens of God's kingdom and members of God's own household. They had a new kingdom, a new family. They did not fear suffering because this slight and momentary affliction was preparing for them an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. They did not fear death because Jesus has authority over death. And his resurrection from the dead was living proof of that hope. Friends, that kind of boldness doesn't come because you try to muster up the guts. You just try to grit your teeth, bear it, the power of your own will to do it. It happens by seeing and believing in the authority of the exclusivity, and the power and presence of Christ. And by resting securely in who we now are and in all that we have now been given in Him. So in that confidence, may we go forth and boldly proclaim, for there is no other name by which we must be saved. Let's pray.